The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Soon Pak, one of the pastors here at Stonebridge. And what joy it is to rest and to worship together in this space. And for those of you joining us online, uh, for us to worship in this way as well. At the new year, we uh, jump back into John, the Gospel of John, that we may believe. Uh, and our pastoral intern kicked us off in John 10 in one of the most iconic passages where Jesus claims, I am the gate. And today we'll talk about I am the good shepherd. And the idea is that we may believe that when we believe in Jesus, we believe that we believe in Jesus who came to give us life and life to the full. Not to steal, kill, and destroy, but to give us life and life to the full. So let's pray for our text today and pray for ourselves as we hear God's word, are shaped and transformed and released by his power. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for these words, uh, Father, that are the words of life, the living water uh, to quench our deep thirst. And Father, to change and transform and refine us to become more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray in your precious name. Amen. You know, when we start the new year, when we flip the page and we think of these, uh, the new year, it's a new beginning, uh, a new day. And so on January 1, I just took uh, from my regular reading just a time to read uh, Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, and a time to reflect and meditate on uh, just those two chapters on the way that God intended the world to be. And as I was reading through it, uh, I remember one of my favorite verses is at the very end of Genesis 2, 25. Uh, and it says this, that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Adam and his wife, mankind at that moment, were fully exposed before themselves, before each other, before all of creation and before God himself and they felt no shame. They felt no need to hide anything. And one historic commentator, when they talk about this verse, they say they talk about it in this moment of being honest and beautiful. Honest and beautiful. I'm not going to ask you to picture what that looks like. Uh, that could derail us for the rest of the morning. 
but as something we feel in our hearts, right? This idea of what it means to be fully exposed, no more hiding, nothing that no one knows about, fully exposed before everything and feeling no shame at all. But we know when we turn the chapter uh, that sin enters into the world. Mankind lets sin into his own heart. This ugly, distorting, and evil, destructive sin that ushers in shame and causes them to hide and cover up before each other and before God himself. The sin that blocks the things that are honest and beautiful as it was always intended. 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian uh, captures it well. And he talks about how because of that sin barrier, there's a, there's a prevention for us to seeing our true selves. And Kierkegaard, uh, the Danish philosopher, says this, in every man, there's something which to a certain degree prevents him from becoming perfectly transparent to himself. Saying there's something in us that hides even from our very selves what it truly means to be us. And he goes on to say this, but he who cannot reveal himself cannot love. And who cannot love is the most unhappy man of all. And what he's trying to dig into is the thing that we crave and we want to return back to Genesis 2, to be fully exposed and considered beautiful. And the very thing that holds us back is the fear of being fully exposed and cast aside. Another way that we say often here uh, in, in, in our preaching is this, is that our greatest desire is to be fully known and fully accepted, but in the very same tension is that our greatest fear is that People are going to find out that we're going to be fully known and rejected and cast aside. So what happens? What do we do? We let the fear hold us back. See, we search for acceptance in all the areas of the world that allows us to prove that we're okay without being fully exposed. We look at our successes. We look at our accolades. Uh, We look even at our own spouses or our children or the things that we have, the possessions, everything the world has to offer that lets us gain it without fully exposing our insecurities, our fears, our deepest selves, and never being perfectly transparent. But we know that soul is always crying out. In the book Soul Craving, the author says this, that the thing that haunts you, the the thing that haunts us, that never seems satisfied, is the cravings in your soul that you are unable to satiate through all the success that the world can bring, says this, this is your soul screaming for God. And we know that to be true, right? Whatever success you may have, whatever uh, victory you may feel like you possess, whatever thing that you gain, you know your soul is still screaming for something that much deeper, something that can never satisfy your soul. And this is where we get to John 10. John 10 comes into the picture, this picture of your screaming soul. And it comes face to face with this all-powerful, all-gracious, all-knowing, all-loving God And he reveals himself as the good shepherd. And I love that. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. And he doesn't use the common Greek word for good uh, in agathos. He actually uses another word meaning good called callous. And that way it can be actually defined beautiful. The beautiful shepherd sits across from your soul. Trying to paint a picture of what life was supposed to be in Genesis 1 and 2, where everything was honest and beautiful. And when we look at our text today, we're going to talk about three different ways we see this shepherd, this beautiful shepherd in our lives. First, the uniqueness 
of the shepherd, uniqueness of the shepherd. Second, the intimacy of the shepherd. And then finally, the implications of what it means to follow the shepherd, the implications of this shepherd. First, the uniqueness of the shepherd, verses 11 through 13. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. As we talk about what makes Jesus as the good shepherd, he contrasts it to this hired hand. Jesus talks about the hired hand who is someone who's brought in to do a job, a task, has no connection to the sheep that he cares for. He's just paid to watch the sheep. So when a wolf comes, someone to attack, the hired hand runs away. And you may judge the hired hands like, well, that guy is he's kind of a coward, right? But I, I think it seems more like a rational response. A wolf comes and he runs away because he has no connection to the sheep. A few years ago, uh, I was outside my house uh, during the day and I'm just doing some yard work. And I came across, well, I didn't come across, this animal started coming toward me. It had this blood-hungry uh, eyes, very ferocious, and it started approaching. I didn't know what to do. I took a picture real quick before running away. Okay, the picture doesn't do it justice. It was at least thrice or four times bigger. And it just, anyway. I don't deal with wild animals. Someone said it's in daylight. It's probably not good to get near it. So what I did is I took all the kids and we went inside Held me hostage for about three hours inside. Uh, we really didn't know what to do. It's not as cute as it looks. Okay, let's move on. Now imagine uh, it wasn't this cute little raccoon, but it was something a lot more ferocious coming at me. I would probably run away. That's the rational response. Now imagine that was actually going after my kids. They were out there and they couldn't escape. I'd probably fight. I would fight, sorry. I would fight. <laughs> I would fight <laughs> something even more ferocious. I would lay my life down. I would fight it even to the point of death. But this is not what Jesus is saying in this passage, by the way. He says he voluntarily lays his life down for the sheep. Four times in our text, Jesus reminds us that what he's doing is not fighting. He's laying his life down. He lays his life down for the sheep. The rational response is that of the hired hand. Shepherds throughout the ancient world and the scriptures, uh, even in Genesis, Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the Israelites, uh, he is a shepherd. He's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. And as he's communicating with them, he tells them, if I lose one of these sheep or one of them gets mauled, I will repay you for that sheep. That's a rational response. He doesn't tell Laban, hey, you know what? I will lay my life down for these sheep. Give, I will give my life since I lost one of the sheep. That doesn't seem like the right response. But Jesus lays his life down for the sheep. In the Greek, that for is not just giving action to something. He's saying instead of the sheep. That something is supposed to happen to the sheep, but instead of, Jesus lays his life down for the sheep. It carries this deep meaning that Jesus takes it on. This is the uniqueness of our shepherd, the good shepherd that meets you unlike anything else you will encounter in this world. Jesus says, I will lay my life down. That we deserve death. 
because of that sin entering into the world, we deserve death. There is no escape. There is no other option. Death is upon us, yet Jesus voluntarily lays his life down. Theologian, the New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson says, in the defense of the sheep, the shepherd loses his life, that by his death, they are saved. It is Jesus laying his life down that our God, the good and beautiful shepherd, lays his life down so that you and I could have life. Jesus isn't here to just make your life a little bit better. Give a a little more social community. Give your life a little more purses. He lays his life down so that you could have life. This is the uniqueness of the God whom we follow. And what does he give us? What does that mean? The intimacy of the shepherd. Next few verses, that says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says again, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are also not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from the Father. In the ministry and church work, I often have meetings, you know, before the workday, early in the morning for breakfast, or in the evening we'll have meetings as we meet with a lot of volunteers and a lot of people that work during the day. Uh, and a few uh, years ago, there's a breakfast place I really enjoyed going to. Uh, it was a little bit out of the way. The food was okay, but I would often go to it because about two or three t- times going there, the wait staff started knowing my name. They would say, hey, good morning, soon." I'd be like, oh, hey, how are you? Uh, they would start knowing what my orders were or the people that I met with. And they would start, you know, they would know my kids when I brought my kids and other times with our family. And they got to know me. And it was a little bit out of the way, but we kept going because they began to know me. And even in this commercial environment, I experienced a connection, a glimmer of human intimacy in an appropriate way. And it drew me to keep coming back. Friends, Jesus, our God, knows you. He knows your name. He knows your story. He knows the hurts and the anxieties and the frustrations. He knows the story you carried into this place this morning. He knows those moments where you feel like you're just about to give up. And he says, I know that story as well. He knows your highest aspirations that you keep even hidden to yourself because you're scared to even dare to dream. He says, I know that as well. Jesus, he knows you as the Father knows him and he knows the Father. He says, that's how much I know you and I know you in the deepest way not just in the ways you've allowed others to see or the ways you've dressed up to be in front of and presentable to others. He's seen all of you exposed. He says, I will lay my life down for you. That is Jesus in this one act, not because of who you are. You have nothing to offer. Jesus says, I will lay my life down for you. And in response, what we get to do is get to know him intimately. 
you get to fall deeper in love with Jesus. That is the Christian life, that we wake up. It's not about a list of rules of what we can and can't do. It's like every day I wake up, I get to fall deeper in love with our Savior. I get to fall more in love with what motivates his heart. I get to find more about the things that he likes, the way he wants life to be done, the ways he wants me to avoid certain things. And I get to fall in love with him more and more and more. And my sinful nature slowly starts dying away. I get to see the deeper grace he has for me. And we get to align more to who he is. That is the beautiful intimacy of what it means to follow after Jesus. That we know him so deeply that our hearts become aligned to his. And what does Jesus do in that moment? It's not just an intimate gaze between us and Jesus. Jesus says there's others. When you're released and you get that, the intimacy that you've never experienced in this world, Jesus says there's others out there they're just waiting to be awoken to the captivating grace that I have for you. There's others out there. And I want to bring them in so that we can be one flock together with one shepherd. For the first century hearers, as they were hearing these words, they were thinking, they were being challenged, saying, okay, this, this new good news, that gospel that Jesus is talking about, it's not just for us Jews that look like us and talk like us and have been raised in the same family and lineage like us. Jesus is saying, and he goes out to the Gentiles. You and I, way beyond the walls of what we thought Jesus was going to be for. For us today, what that means is that this Jesus and this beautiful intimacy we have to offer and the uniqueness of Jesus is not just without these walls, but in our communities and neighborhoods and beyond, that God has a purpose to bring others into this fold of what it means to sing to our God. Let words revive our hearts and to be in communion with God. Church, our mission is to continue in the mission of Jesus, to not withhold the intimacy of Jesus just for ourselves, bring those whom Jesus has called into experience it for themselves. A Savior, a Lord, a beautiful shepherd who knows us and loves us and has laid his life down for each and every one of us who have called him as Savior and Lord. What does this imply? The implications of this shepherd. What does it mean when we start walking in this way? The last few verses. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But the others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? See, this controversy has been brewing. If you remember in John chapter 9, same controversy is brewing among the Jewish leaders. Who is this man who's performing miracles, who's claiming such audacious claims? See, Jesus, when he talks about the good shepherd, he's not just using the shepherd and sheep imagery or parable or metaphor just because that's what people were used to or that's something they could understand. See, he wasn't just trying to share the shepherd and sheep, just the scope of the relationship he wants to have with each and every one of us. What he's claiming in this passage is that a promise in the Old Testament, a promise in the scriptures that claims who the Lord is. We're going to look at Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel is a prophet of Israel. He prophesies in the days of the Babylonian captivity in the early 6th century BC, many, many years ago. What the prophet Ezekiel saw was his homeland destroyed. Israel is destroyed. The temple, <coughs> excuse me, the temple of God is destroyed. And they're taken from their homeland and taken into captivity in Babylon. Ezekiel is prophesying to the people. 
and specifically the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel. And he calls them the shepherds of Israel. And he accuses them of their failure to lead the people of God. And he calls these shepherds of Israel, they have failed in nurturing and caring and feeding the flock, the people of God. And he says, you've been brutal and you've been harsh and you have not done a good job in leading these precious people, the Israelites. And God steps in in verse 11, Ezekiel 34 and 11, he says this, for this is what the sovereign Lord, the Lord of all the scripture, Lord of all the Israelites says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. You have failed, O Israel. Now I will step in and be the shepherd who searches for them and looks after them. He goes on in verse 15 and 16. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the uninjured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. What Jesus is claiming when he says, I am the good shepherd, it's not just this picture of this comforting figure who wants to hold you in his arms and take care of you. He does do that. But he's claiming the promise of Ezekiel 34, the promise of the scriptures of the Old Testament saying, I am the Lord. I have come to give you new life, a new way. I am the Lord. And what the Jewish leaders of the time, what they heard is, well, he must be mad. He's claiming to be God. He must be raving mad. Well, there are other groups saying he is who he says he is. The implications haven't strayed too far for us today. See, we either have to place our faith in Jesus and say who he is and follow him, or we have to dismiss him as this raving, mad figure. Let us not be, let us not miss that the good shepherd is one who comes with justice, one who has come to restore all things. He is the sovereign Lord who has come to bring redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. He would take those who are broken in his flock and bring healing and hope. He will search those outside of his flock who are lost and will quench their souls with the captivating grace of the gospel. He will bring them in because he is the beautiful shepherd, the good shepherd, the one who's bringing back what it feels, what it was in the beginning, the way life was always intended to be with our God, honest and beautiful with a good shepherd who watches over us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the good shepherd, God who watches over us, who tends to us, who sees us and nurtures us, who has called us out of our brokenness and brought us into healing. Lord, only through you and you alone do we have life. And you sent your son Jesus to not just live the perfect life, but die the death that we so deserve so that in turn we could receive the robe of righteousness covered by the blood of the lamb. And only through that, by your Holy Spirit, do we stand. Do we stand and call you Abba, Father. God, we long for you. Our souls scream for you. And Father, only in your embrace the good shepherd, that we find comfort, healing, and wholeness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.